This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 189. I got to hang out with Michelle Emanuel to chat about oral restrictions and sensory regulation. This was something that was coming up in our village, asking about how lip ties or tongue ties might play into sensory regulation. So I started to do a deep dive and found Michelle and was like, whoa, I ended up diving real deep. (laughs) She is a wealth of knowledge. And I hung out with her before Seiji was even born. I was pregnant when we recorded this episode and was just blown away by how, you know, we know everything is connected, but man, everything really is connected. And this episode was super fun. I learned a bunch and I hope that it's helpful for you. There's a lot more discussion now about oral restrictions than there has been in the past and uh, more diagnosis of this and support around it. And it is really interesting to me how much it plays into the nervous system and our sensory regs. So without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today we're going to talk about oral restrictions and their impact on overall sensory regulation. We talk about the sensory systems a lot over at Seed. Y'all know I'm obsessed with OTs. They're some of my favorite humans to chat with and get nerdy with. And today I get to do that again. Today I get to hang out with Michelle Emanuel. Hi, Michelle. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. Totally. I'm excited to get to know you and to get nerdy with you. I like to get nerdy. <laughs> me too. Uh, <laughs> can you share with our village a bit about who you are and like your background, kind of what brings you into this work? Oh yeah, I'd love to. 
I started out knowing I wanted to be an occupational therapist before I even went to college. And it was a journey to get there. It took me five and a half years to get a baccalaureate degree, but I did. And I was really intent. You have to get a very high marks, right, to get into OT school. So I was already a big achiever. And I knew I wanted to work with children. It was always really clear to me. And so I got into OT school and my first job was in pediatric rehab. And I learned a lot about the nervous system and how the brain works and the spinal cord. And I was amazed at some of the recovery and the progress. And then I was dismayed by the lack of it sometimes, et cetera. And, and what it meant to learn to cope with a new reality and mourn the loss of something and embrace something new. But in the back of my mind, I always knew I wanted to work with babies. And so I then began, you know, seeking out places that I could learn. I did some acute care pediatrics and then I worked, I, I got a job at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and I worked there for 17 and a half years. Half of that was in the NICU and the CCU and PICU. So all the intensive care cares, but <clears throat> mainly the NICU and then NICU follow-up. And I worked in a lot of different clinics and I worked with amazing people, but I learned a lot there. And so I ended up going into full-time private practice about five years ago and just specifically focusing on the pre-crawling baby and sensory systems and nervous system regulation and co-regulation and movement and making sure that babies have movement prolific environments so that there aren't inhibitions to their motor systems developing because this pre-crawling period is so unique and I've got my microscope on it, you know, and that's where I focus. And I mentor professionals who want to also focus on this. We've got a bunch of people now who, you know, are out there and very resourced with the minutia because some people were, were glossing over this period sometimes, especially with the tummy time. And Anyway, so that's how I did that. And along the way, I was raising three of my own beautiful children and learning what it was like in reality, taking care of children and what it was like to be a therapist recommending stuff and, and that reality. So I was always having some of what of a balance there because parenting is tough and it's a process where, you know, there's a lot of change in it and it even you know, for me, who I'm kind of a sensory person, I think all pediatric OTs are former sensory kids, okay? And what that was like for me to have to, you know, learn a whole new way of regulating myself around being a mother. And, and then now, here I am, you know, my youngest is getting ready to turn 18. We have OTs who specifically focus on that now. I would have loved to have worked with an OT, you know, at that time. So I think that's really neat. Well, anyway, um, more about how I got here. I'm very passionate and I love working with babies who are like tummy time haters because really they're just telling us what they need help with because mm -hmm. all the babies deserve to be comfortable in all positions of their body. There's no reason why we put a baby on their belly if they don't like it. We need to investigate further and find out what's going on because there's nothing inherently painful or uncomfortable. It might be challenging or difficult or, or something that we need to make adapt to make it easier, but we want babies to be able to be in all positions comfortably. And so now I feel really blessed. I work, you know, I have a private practice here in Cincinnati. I'm as busy as I want to be. And I also have, you know, a little, I have a little fun on social media and I like 
trying to help get the word out. What can parents do at home? What's easy? What's helpful in the realm of helping relationships and social, emotional, interactional development? So for me, it's not just about the physicality, but as an OT, I think you understand too from emotional, but. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. And I, one of my favorite things about OTs is that you're awesome detectives, like always going into the why and, and that's how my brain works. I am not like a surface human. I want to know like, what's really going on below the surface here? What, what is this behavior communicating, et cetera? What are you really letting me know that you need more support with? And OTs are so good at that. I think that's something I really gravitate toward with y'all. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. And it's, it's also, I think the cornerstone for everything, like our nervous system regulation affects how we move through the day. It affects how we feel. It affects how we show up in all spaces. And it's, I think at like the key to getting down to that why and what's going on within the nervous system before we can move up the ladder to what else is happening. And we talk about this, I made it up, but I call it the triangle of growth and really looking at sensory regulation is at the base of the triangle for me, that we can't move Mm. to emotional regulation or language and communication until we have really looked at sensory regulation and supported kiddos there. So everything you just said, I was just like, yep, yep. I'm here for all of this. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, (laughs) Oh, thanks. So I really, one thing that I want to learn more about here and what I'm excited to dive in specifically on today is around oral restrictions. I want to learn more about like how this connects to other systems and structures in the body and kind of what we're looking at and seeing here. I feel like it's a topic I'm hearing more and more about in the early childhood world and just want to learn more about. So can we start off with like, what are oral restrictions? What does that even mean if that's a new term for somebody? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Basically, we could call it a tongue tie. But the reason why we switch sort of to oral restrictions is because there's now also lip ties and there's also buckle ties, which are buckle is the space in the cheek, B-U-C-C-A-L. And so we actually have seven natural frena. It's two on our lips and one of our tongue and then two upper and two lower. And they're natural. These are supposed to be there, these structures. And what they're there for is stabilizing the soft tissue to the bone. So how they develop in utero is going to be reflected in how they feel at birth. It's how they've practiced. So if an area that they were using a lot and, and here we go, if we do have oral restrictions, we're calling them tongue ties, that is going all the way back, you know, to the embryology, to when they were eight weeks, nine weeks, 10 weeks, 11 weeks, these very early places. It's the transition from embryo to fetus. It's all this oral stuff and the tongue is supposed to be separating from the floor of the mouth and the tissues are supposed to develop in these ways that are open. And anyway, so that doesn't happen a lot. Now it can, it's exacerbated by them practicing compensatory strategies. So if they can't move the tongue or they can't move the lip, Um, or they can't move the jaw, the jaw is a big piece of it too, how we move our jaws, then as the body grows and gets bigger, the tissue just doesn't necessarily grow and get elastic. It kind of grows and gets tight. 
Mm. And that's making it maybe a little simplistic, but that's basically what happens. So this is, you know, tongue tie has been around for a long, long time. It's been documented um, very, uh, for a long time that, you know, that this has been there, but people want to know why does it seem like it's so much more now? I think that's the problem, you know. One, it, the, it dipped down and when breastfeeding went down a little bit because bottle feeding can mask ties and oral dysfunction. Now here we got to talk about if we have a tie, it's not like, oh, there's this one little piece in the body that isn't working. And if we just release it, everything's going to work right. It's all integrated into the myofascial structures, which means the muscles too and how movement happens. So it's a little bit more complex than just releasing the tie, even when there is a tongue tie. I, I, I've, oh my gosh, my wheels are turning. Okay, so first of all, like that's so rad to like dive into. I didn't realize it went back all the way to from like embryonic stage. And it makes total sense to me that then like as the tiny human would grow, that it would get tighter. That makes total sense yeah. to me. Yeah. It depends on the baby though. If they're um, high level of movement and there's not a lot of restrictions, then perhaps it doesn't have as much of effect, right? Okay. And for some babies, it's gonna be significant. Like they get in one position. They don't move around a lot. Got it. Um, Cause it's know. almost like they have that restriction. Like they, they almost can't move around a lot. It's too tight. That makes sense. So when we're looking at, you know, if you, you said you wouldn't just like release a tie, you would want to be doing this work kind of beyond in with, with, as a systems whole approach. What do you mean by that? Like, what else would it look like? Why? I guess what I'm confused about is like, if you release the tie, why wouldn't that make everything else kind of relax? Well, it does, and there are different degrees and varying degrees of it. And I'm an occupational therapist and an oral motor professional and a body worker and a neurodevelopmental specialist. So I'm one part of a team. So I'm. it's not up to me like what exactly happens. It's working collaboratively with a release provider who would be a doctor or a nurse practitioner or someone who has the surgical ability to release the tie and do the diagnosing and a lactation professional who would bring in and help with a whole host of things that are needed because, you know, sometimes babies, that's the thing. Sometimes there's a lot of feeding signals that there are things going on and sometimes there aren't. There's no guarantee. There's so much variability and uniqueness to ties that there is, I call it the slippery noodle, but... <laughs> It depends. Like for some babies, it's compromised and it's made things a little bit more chaotic, okay, or more asymmetric. Like some babies who have a very small jaw, like it's re or a recessed jaw. Sometimes the tie itself is so short and thick, and there's so much muscular dys dysfunction that they're all kind of woven in together. And in order for us to adequately because the only thing that the medical provider releases is the white connective tissue fascia part. They do not cut into the muscle at all. And so when those tissues have been a little bit more, you know, dissociated or you can tell that there's less muscle dysfunction. I mean that can be you know done. But we that's what we call optimal timing of release. So it kind of depends on the severity. It depends. There's so much. This is why we really need 
to get babies you know, assessed individually and recommendations made based on individuals. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's so much, I think, in the postpartum period, especially here in the States, that we are lacking, (laughs) that we aren't supportive within. And I think a lot of it, you know, I even saw in teaching infants and toddlers, so especially in my infant room, so much that was like a wait and see approach. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you've seen hundreds or thousands of right. infants, you start to notice like I, I, one kiddo just came to my mind too. At four months, I was like, there's something that's off. And I yeah. couldn't fit And We, I, I had the privilege of having access to an OT to be able to get, uh, consult with. And right. we went through all these things and long story short, this kiddo ended up at age two qualifying for services for OT, but nobody would do the eval under six months for it, or he wouldn't, he couldn't qualify under six months because it wasn't severe enough. Just drives me bonkers. I think there are so many things in that uh, early infancy stage that we don't have enough support on. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Hormone Harmony is an all-in-one hormonal balancing solution for women of all ages. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormone changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Hormone Harmony is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put your life on hold, like hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all these things. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like yourself again. That's what women mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code village at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code village for 15% off today. Well, and now you know why that's why I focus on these pre-crawling babies and their families because there is so much to know and focus on. And if we do 
put the emphasis here with the village, then it makes everything else later so much easier. Now, we're not going to make perfect people because we don't even want to do that. We want people to be who they are. We don't want them to have barriers and obstacles and restrictions to who they are going to express themselves fully. And everybody's going to be a little different and everybody should be different, but we don't want, we want everyone to be optimized. Totally. Not to have those roadblocks. So how might oral restrictions like impact the overall central nervous system regulation? Wow. Um, That's a big question. Great (laughs) question. I think we should like have a different time where we go deep on that because I need to go a little shallow. Otherwise we will open up so much that it will get off track. But (laughs) totally. Yeah. Well, it's an inside outside job. Okay. On the one hand, we've got the nervous system, which is busy developing a body and a nervous system and a motor system, which is really quite sophisticated actually. And that play, I call it the gestational playground right now when the fetus is in the womb. This is not a waiting period to be born. This is a, a movement. It should be filled with movement. The baby really doesn't slow down movement till right now. You, you should really be feeling your baby um, slowing down a little bit, um, but not too much, right? Yeah. So just for folks bit. who are listening at the time of this recording, I'm 37 weeks pregnant. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. But the, the baby's doing things in there. So they should be really moving around and still actually rotating and flipping and moving and pushing and extending and using the feet on the uterine wall and developing their foot bracing regulation. They should be turning their head side to side and vigorously working on their hands and their fingers and the cord probably. Yeah, for sure. All don't don't you worry. All that's for sure happening, especially around like four thirty in the morning. <laughs> oh, you've got a four thirty in the morning, baby. I love that. <laughs> yeah, but that's so cool. how then does this? You know, I, I'm I'm so jazzed that you're diving into really like what the nervous system is. I think it's something that yeah, a lot of folks don't understand like the vastness of the nervous system and how much it does affect all of the things. And I think this can play into the wait and see is like, oh, let's just wait and see if this develops. And this is, I think what you're about to go into is why I'm not a fan of wait and see. Yeah. Ooh, wait and see makes me so, ooh, ooh, not happy. Because why? Because we know that we don't just get handed our developmental skills because we change a week in age. We have to move through them and work through them and have them elicited and have the optimal sensory input for the optimal motor output. And it's going to be a little different between babies, but we have to do the thing to get the thing. So we really need to move a lot and practice a lot. And we have some barriers to that, especially even after birth, but before birth. And that's what we're talking about right now is the oral restrictions, which binds the tongue down to one degree or another, right? But this gestational playground is when they're practicing and they're developing at the same time because they're practicing even breathing movements, you know, and all the muscles are breathing. They're just breathing kind of like in and out. And there's, they have lung fluid, Okay. It's just a little bit different than amniotic fluid. There's kind of a meeting of them. They meet somewhere in the airway, but they're practicing breathing. And we know that if babies don't practice these breathing movements, they don't develop their lungs. 
So we, it's this function and this practice is all really important for right after they come into the extra uterine environment, but they've got lots of reflexes already in there. Okay. And there's reflexes to be born. So the mother has reflexes for birth and the baby has reflexes for birth. And we would like to have that unfold. There's, and it's one of the things that gets in the way of that natural unfolding are tethered oral tissues or oral restrictions. Because the tongue, I call it the epicenter of development. It's like for a baby, your tongue should be the most well-developed, sophisticated thing you've got. You're, besides sleeping, bonding and snuggling and looking cute, your primary occupation is feeding, using your tongue to create suction and your jaw movements and swallowing in order to develop the airways and craniofacial respiratory development. And also there's a lot of this going on and our brain wants to be really efficient. So it will get better at the things we practice and not learn about the new things until we you know, entice it sometimes. So that's why these these habits get really ingrained. And so it's the first latch and practicing breathing and getting used to gravity. And then they might think that the certain way they've got a feeding is the way to do it and continue doing it. Okay. And that's where, and then it's really hard to get them to use more um, optimal movements, especially when we have certain barriers, which leads us to having inadequate experiences of tummy time. It's a big problem too. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm hearing here is like that when essentially like all these things lead to another thing, right? Like I've said here before that, like, I don't actually care at what point your kid crawls or walks because I want them to hit a milestone. I want to know when they crawl or walk so that I know if there's any barrier in their way, because if it is, it'll affect other things along the way, right? It's not just like, oh, well, you know, everybody walks at some point if they, you know, have that motor ability, but rather that like, oh, if it's not happening, why? And Mm -hmm. what else might get in its way? And that's what I'm hearing from you here is that if we are seeing that there's like a restriction that that would restrict other things. And then we would have this like under the surface kind of restrictions across the board, whether it's movement restrictions outside of feeding or tongue or lip ties that we'll see it affect other areas of motor development, which is then sensory development. Is that what I, is that right? Did I get that right? Yes, and connecting that back with how the nervous system is reflecting in ties, those kind of compensatory strategies and the way that the tissues are aligned or not, it makes some reflexes hypersensitive, some Uh hyposensitive, and it makes some digestive tracts really have some dysfunction, like lots of reflux or gastric motility or all different types and then airway, like squeakiness, congestion, noisy breathing. So there's a lot of different things about the tongue being the most sophisticated organ is going to dictate how the autonomic nervous system, how that really um, primal part of us that as we're babies, it feels it's going to be directly related to tongue function and what the tongue is doing. That makes sense. And tongue restrictions actually pull the tongue down low 
and compress the airway a little bit. And they, what they do also is not allow the tongue to go up to the palate where it needs to be fully suctioned when they're sleeping 100% of the time. And then also there when they're not using it, you know, when they're awake, just at rest. That makes total sense to me. So really like what we could see is that something starting with um, an oral restriction could potentially lead to like other, maybe even like motor delays, things like that. Could those be connected there? Yeah, but not to get too worried or like scared about that more than just, you know, know that the tongue needs to move the most. Totally. I'm yeah, yeah. Not in like a fear-based, like if you're getting yeah. a tongue tie, they're going to, this is going to be the case. But I, yeah. w- what I'm hearing is that like, it really does connect to all these other systems or, yes. um, and can affect them. Cool. Yes. That's, that's so interesting to me. Um, is revision always the answer? Well, if a baby has a restriction and they have they don't have the range of motion in their tongue that everybody needs to do the proper development. It needs to be released, but the timing is always going to be the question. So yes, if somebody has a a restriction or a tie, they need to be released. But when is the question is best for them? You know, so like the babies that are identified in the hospital, then yes, we need to let, you know, go ahead with that. But we also need to tell families that that may not meet all of the needs that they need to follow up with lactation therapy or body work support. And it's really important to locate your lactation resources in the community, okay? And people who know how to work with infant feeding in general too. What does this look like if it wasn't diagnosed in the hospital? What if it's something that like, you know, maybe you're a few weeks in and you are seeing feeding challenges or something like that. And you end up with a diagnosis a little bit later. Um, what would that look like at that point? Is it still something that you would say like, yeah, we are still going to revise or how does that change the course of treatment? Well, yes. And that actually happens a lot because, and that's okay, but we do need to kind of funnel these babies into people who do are knowledgeable and able to identify properly and to assess the baby for readiness of release. Okay, so it does. What is, will you tell me what that means, readiness of release? Well, it means are they ready to get the tongue released? And Why so wouldn't when you they say be? revised, revision means they've already had one and this is their second okay. one. Got it. So the first one, well, and for some babies it will be if they were, if they had a little snip. That's what they call it sometimes in the hospital and you go for another release, which that would be technically be a revision. Got it. Okay. But, um, you could say release for everything if you want, but cool. it's, um, you know, there are circumstances where it's caused so much dysfunction in the nervous system or with the movement system that, or it's embedded still in the, in the muscle and it's not enough, you know, its own tissue. Okay. Or the jaw is really small and sometimes we need a little bit of growth. Otherwise we can't fully release it. Got it. Okay. And we need to like weigh because it's an intense process going through a tongue tie release. It's totally doable. And this is also why we want to work with babies to, you know, sometimes they need to build a little bit of resiliency. Some babies are having a lot of dysregulation and we don't want to just overload them 
with the procedure when they don't have the capability to use the range of motion in the first place. Right. So that's why it needs to be timed really well. And it needs to be done on an individual basis. I cannot stress this enough. Like anything I would say today, you know, even globally, it's, it still needs to be looked at and individualized. Um, this timing thing. And it's not like we wait a long, long time. These babies, I mean, we're talking about days to week to maybe a couple of weeks or three. It depends on what's going on. Who would be able to best like assess the timing portion of that? Like what, I guess, who would you seek out for support for nailing that part down? That's a great question because it's a multidisciplinary team. It could be composed of OT occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, chiropractic, osteopathy. Um, I don't want to forget anyone, but it can be people who are specialty trained. And I think that's more important than their exact discipline. You do Mm -hmm. want to be working with people who have a license to touch or a license to do what they do or certification, because this is a very sensitive issue working in and around a baby's mouth. It's a sacred space. Yeah. And babies have loads and loads and loads of brain rent is being paid to the mouth and we can mess this up. That's all I want to say. If we do procedures that are ill-timed because the brain is learning through experience and it's developing through experience. And we, we don't want babies having negative experiences and going through procedures that it's too intense for them at that time. Now, we also do want to go as fast as we can because we want to get it as early as possible, but that doesn't always mean right, right away. Yeah. But anyway, so it can be anybody of that discipline. And I would really just kind of seek out like who's the knowledgeable people who've done trainings Etc. Because the whole optimal timing of release was like a concept I just put out there because I was seeing suboptimal outcomes. I was seeing babies who I thought, wow, just really, it's not just, I just had a gut feeling. And this was, you know, many years ago. And have I put it into words, I started using the word optimal timing just to start thinking about it. Because we used to just identify release, identify yeah. release. And that's just not, it doesn't, it doesn't help and it doesn't work anymore because there's too many comorbidities or things that go along with having the tongue tie, like really posture problems, breathing dysfunction, recessed jaws, small jaws, um, really a lot of tension or um, nervous system dysregulation, difficulty calming, difficulty sleeping. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, So what I would, that was, that was interesting because I I a thousand percent before five minutes ago in this conversation would have fallen into the category of like, oh, my kid has a lip tie or a tongue tie. Yeah, let's do the release. And like, it would not have known that there was a certain, and and I think so for so many of us, the like go-to person or the person who we might be seeing or that might be covered by insurance, et cetera, is that pediatrician or nurse practitioner. And I noticed that when you were saying, when you were talking about the optimal, those people weren't people you mentioned there. Yeah. And I also forgot to mention lactation because there's a lot of lactation consultants who have also done the same thing. We've, you know, all need to say that we've taken a specialty training. I didn't want to forget anyone, but that's a good point. There are some pediatricians who have really excelled at this and some just don't. And as a matter of fact, the story that is now being really talked about with pediatricians. And I 
love the criticism of the tongue tie release world that they're giving, but they're saying now it's trendy and I don't believe in that and don't do this because the posterior tie isn't a thing. I welcome all of that criticism. That's why I'm saying what they're seeing, these bad outcomes or whatever, or inconsequential outcomes or subpar outcomes, they're not impressed or whatever. I'm just speaking from the pediatrician's mind is this lack of optimal timing. Okay. That makes total sense to me. Rushing every baby to a release just because they, I got, I'm getting excited. Um, (laughs) Your excitement is welcome here. (laughs) (laughs) Because they got identified and we really need to be more sophisticated than that and use these intellectual, like mindful decisions and taking a lot of different factors into and helping the family understand that because all the families I work with are, you know, a large majority of them understand after they've had the education and they've understood the whole process and they can see the changes happening. The other thing is we're not going to send them home just to fail and flop around. That's what therapy's for. That's what body work is for. That's what these interventions are for, lactation support. We need to make sure we need to preserve the milk supply. We're like, what do we need to get the baby released so the mommy can make? That doesn't always equal out. Like if a release always solved that problem, I would be the first one to say, just send them because that's easy. Let's do it. But it doesn't do it. And so um, not always. Now there are some babies who do. You hear the miracle you know, oh, my baby got released and it changed everything. Well, there there is a group of babies like that, but they had milder symptoms to begin with and they had less associated compensations. Yeah, that makes they had sense. Less associated things going on, less symptomatology, right? Yeah. Because the tongue is going to send symptoms all through the whole body because the tongue, again, at the center, the middle of development, and it's going to spread all over the body all the way down to the toes. And many people are into fascia these days and they understand what fascia is. And the tongue is connected to the toes. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not gonna tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. 
It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. That that was really helpful to hear because the I have definitely heard the like narrative of like, oh, we did it and it didn't work or whatever. That's or because they got sent before they were ready and they weren't in a, a place to be able to assimilate that. And every, yeah. I don't know why everybody understands this for adults. Like, okay, I need this kind of surgery. Like you would understand like certain people need a little bit more prep work and other people need a little bit less. We can see that in babies as well. It's really kind of obvious once we've got our, our microscope on it and looking at it. Or even um, the rehab after that, like if you had surgery, then you would likely see a PT to do rehab after or whatever that like, and so it, that makes total sense as you're bringing like the full village into this, that it wouldn't just be the release. It's then what do you do after what else are we doing around that release to support this tiny human? That makes sense. And I don't want fa- families to get overwhelmed by thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to work with all of these people? I, right. you know, so that's why I developed the tummy time method, you know, a little marketing here because it's. so that families could do tummy time therapy, tummy time at home. So it minimizes the need for all the therapeutic intervention. It doesn't decrease. I mean, it doesn't take it away. It just minimizes it. You like, you only have to do so many sessions and change happens quickly. What we do at home matters. And so it's really powerful therapy you do for free at your house. And then you take your baby in for little adjustments or a little bit of micro, you know, changing things, tweaking things a little bit here and there. Because babies, we need to also, even though they're symbiotic with the, the birth parent, they, we need to see them also as unique human beings. And they have, there's a whole normal biological imperative and neurodevelopmental sequence that happens when we watch the humans as mammals. And, you know, we want that to be able to happen easily. And feeding happens to be the number one indicator of how well that's going movement wise. Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. And I think that, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, I, we had a Facebook like comment at one point on this where somebody was like, oh, well, my kid had a tongue or lip tie and we didn't do anything. And now they're two and a half and things are fine and they're eating fine and they're whatever. Um, And I I would like to touch on that of like, what, what can we see down the road if we don't do revisions or um, releases earlier Uh, that might not be the glaring, like, oh, you know, it might not be like some big thing that we see, but that we might not even know, oh, these are connected. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's, I hear that a lot. Like we didn't do tummy time and my kid's fine and this and that. One, and I really can't appreciate that, that you don't, that the parent doesn't have any overt concerns about that, but saying someone is fine is, you know, relative to what a parent or a therapist eye to the norm, to the bell curve, to what we have expectations, because what we want to do is really be proud of our babies for how prolifically they can move rather than how still and quiet they can be, right? Our infants have 
a rapid sequence of development in six months. They really need to go from basically, you know, their heads all tipped over and they, you know, really don't have much uh, voluntary control at all to having voluntary control and integrating the reflexes and kind of there it is. And they're going from that to getting in a crawling position. Now crawling can be anywhere from six to nine months, really. There's a lot of spongy variability there, but it's a short period of time to get your postural control. And we want babies to be able to do that with ease and grace. And when babies can problem solve in their bodies and feel the ease and freedom of movement and not have inhibitions, this helps them learn better. This helps them connect better. This helps them process their sensory. Um, you wanna talk about a baby who can do well with their sensory processing is how that they feel inside their body about movement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. And it, it, for me is one of those things where, you know, you mentioned like optimizing development earlier and that for me, that's what I want for all humans is that you feel the best you can in your body and in your environment. And again, it's not that like you hit this milestone and we're just checking that off as like, wow, you hit this milestone, but instead like really optimizing this kiddo's life and ability to move through the world. And I have seen it as a teacher and how it can affect their ability to enter into a social group or play in a certain space or um, really filter information, sensory stimuli. Like all, there are so many different ways that I think these things come into play that don't necessarily seem like, oh, A to B. Yeah. And so we can, it can be hard to see how we might see these effects down the road. Um, but also I've said, like, I'm not a Band-Aid person. Like, tell me more. I want to know why. And for me, that's well, really like, I want to release any roadblocks. You want to know something really trippy? It's there's a posture connection to social, emotional, interactional skills. And posture means that babies have to go from being physiologically flexed and they have to come out. And when they birth is our first really big extension and we extend our bodies and we need to spend the first 12, 14, 16, 18, 20 weeks extending up into gravity. And being able to use these experiences and we're not getting as much of that as we need to, okay? We really need to develop our posture and that is so inner digitated with our sensory processing and also our social emotional interactional skills. And I agree with you so much because to me, it's the nuances of development mm -hmm. and I hate box checking. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, I did check so many boxes working at a children's hospital. I've checked them all. But guess what? It's the nuances. It's the experience. It's the embodiment. It's the baby's felt sense. This whole, this new sense that's coming into everyone's awareness, thankfully, through even just an occupational therapist has brought our awareness to it, is the interoception. Mm -hmm. the sense of our insides, right? You've heard that. Mm -hmm. And for babies, that's a lot of that is from their gut. And that sensation is coming up from the vagus nerve, right? Mm -hmm. This is really big. And definitely the tongue is part of the digestive system. So anything that's disrupting tongue function, range of motion, endurance, rest posture is going to have an effect all the way down. Yeah, that's so fascinating to me.
Okay, Michelle, I feel like I could get nerdy with you for so long. I (laughs) love this so much. If folks were like, okay, I'm curious about my baby now. And I'm wondering if like they, if they wanted to have them checked out or have them assessed by someone who is trained in this, where would you essentially, what would you look up? Where would you suggest that they start to look that up? In a world where like, if you just type anything into Google, you're going to feel overwhelmed. Like where would a parent start? Well, that's a great question. I would start with, if they're into social media, you could get on your, usually there's a a state or a geographic location tongue tie support group. Mm, Okay. Now that can be intense to be involved in those, in, in those groups. And that can be I recommend them with moderation, okay? But reaching out to local lactation resources and asking the question, you know, do you have knowledge and experience working with oral restrictions? And that person will tell you yes, or they'll send you or no, or and they should send you and say, well, if you don't, can you tell me someone who does? Calling the local pediatric occupational therapy, speech therapy clinics, and especially if you find someone in, this is kind of the secret, is someone in private practice. (laughs) That's somebody who's come out of an institution. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't really great therapists working in institutions. Hello, y'all out there. Yes, there are. But the people who have come out of institutions, like myself, or in private practice, we don't have to necessarily follow the party line. We don't have to say what everybody else is saying. We can really use just our experiences and we all have had to take, you know, I didn't learn this in OT school. So you have to take a Mm -hmm. lot of classes and conferences and seminars and connecting with other professionals. You want to work with someone who's connected to other people in the oral restrictions world, but not to put too much, you know, pressure on you. Just call and, and ask private practice OTs, private practice speech therapists. You can Google that in your area ask, go on your, ask someone, Hey, has anybody ever had a baby that had tongue tie? Who'd you work with? And did it work out? Now, you know, there's going to be some people, there's just a range of experience and you want to just work with the people who are best suited for you. Okay. Depending upon where you're at and where you're listening from, it's going to be different people, but generically needed. If you're breastfeeding, we need lactation support. If you're bottle feeding, you can work with a therapist without lactation support. Not saying lactation consultants can't work with bottle feeding, but there's not a a big reason to match that up when if the OT or the speech therapist has good bottle feeding um, therapy skills. You want to work with, you know, body work professionals. If you have a chiropractor you work with, an osteopath that you see or another body worker, and hopefully you maybe already have developed those relationships for yourself, but always still ask for the people who have specialty training with babies and ties. And you will find somebody, they'll be able to, you know, connect you with somebody and that's, you know, close. And there's people who now will do some telehealth. Um, I know we do for tummy time method, we do what we call teletummies and you can get on a virtual consult and learn how to do it at home with your baby. And it's really easy to do, but some people are doing, you know, guiding and I do it from time to time, but it's not what I want to spend all my time doing because I like my hands on and doing teaching, but you can really do a lot. Like I keep my doll here and, you know, where to touch. I teach a lot of face massage and um, 
you know, how to get a baby relaxed and tummy time and how, how to help them really move their tongue without getting upset and how to look at the tongue for what it should look like. I think that's it too. We're not really sure what it looks like. You got to work with someone who can tell you like, well, it's supposed to come all the way over here or look, it's coming all the way over here. And that's what it looks like. I'm comparing sides, but you know, just work with the best people that you have and, and ask a lot of good questions. Yeah. I think that you just pointed out something that I think is really crucial and important and a reason why I think the village as a whole is so important is that like, I, I was, I was just chatting with my friend the other day and was like, yeah, I can assess a child's development pretty quickly at this point because I've worked with thousands of children and have assessed so many kids that I have a barometer for like, what's typical or what I'm like, Oh yeah, I noticed that. But like, that's a yellow flag for me right now. Like I'm not actually paying attention to that right yet. Um, or that's standing solo and there's no other flags that go with it, etc. And I think that this is something that we have placed so much responsibility on parents who aren't trained to see this, to know this, who haven't seen hundreds or thousands of kids right. to be able to compare that in the same way that like, I don't know what the tongue should look like or be doing. Like that's something that is outside of my discipline that I will seek support to say like, is this how this should look? (laughs) Like I'm, I don't know. And I think that it's really important that we can acknowledge that it's not a parent's sole responsibility to have all of this knowledge. And instead to say it does take a village and to be able to tap into a village and, and, and get that support of like, is this what this should look like? <laughs> is this right. developmentally appropriate? It, yeah. Even if you've had a couple kids, like they, it can vary so yeah. much kid to kiddo and things can show up so differently that I think that that's so important that you noted that. And I think we put way too much pressure on parents to have all the answers. Even oh, one of the phrases that drives me nuts is the like, just trust your gut or trust your intuition. And I, I think that that can also put too much pressure on a parent. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, but my gut says, I don't know, like this is my first kid or whatever. And I, yeah, I, I love that you tied the village in there. Actually, we I see a chiropractor regularly. And one of the very first things I set up, we're planning a home birth, but one of the first awesome. things I set up was like, can you come to my house and do a home visit for this baby? That's hopefully going to be taking quite a journey outside the womb. Like that. Yeah. Oh, I love, but also, and I love chiropractic and that is really important in body work and all the things, but please don't put us above the biological imperative, which is making sure the baby gets a really proper breast crawl. Totally. And that can take one to three hours before the baby crawls and we do this is our mammalian instinct and this is what we're capable of and when we don't often use circuits and and movements that we're capable of then we aren't we it doesn't optimize our feeding part of the breast crawl experience for a baby is to prepare them for the first natural latch and so the moving side to side and stopping and sniffling and those crawling motions and digging their feet into your flesh and pushing up, they're able to move independently you know, to the breast. And that will be wonderful body work for your baby too. And also a very big functional optimizer. And then by the time they get there, they've opened up any kind of restriction from being tucked up in the womb and know, coming out into gravity, because that's quite a big pressure change. Woo! 
Totally. You take that first big breath of air and woo. <laughs> that makes total sense. I mean, it, I think we would think of that with any other like workout. I wouldn't like just start sprinting. I would ease my way there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we work our way into that. And so to just be like, you came out and now feed from this breast without any sort of movement beforehand. That makes total sense to me. Michelle. Well, and they're not quite hungry yet because they're uh, right. You know, they've been fed 24 seven by and the process of moving up there does get them hunger and hunger is a motivator. Totally. Yeah. We motivator don't... for me. Let me tell you. Uh... <laughs> I want to say one more thing before we Please. end. Yeah. Um, I have so appreciated goodness. I'm going to start like listening all the time. I really love your vibe and what you're doing. And I can really tell you have a deep understanding of things and it goes beyond like you're saying the physical it's, it's who we are as people and also the experience, the human experience, but social, emotional, interactional and emotional regulation and yeah. understanding co-regulation is how we all regulate our nervous system. And that is, you know, the experience that our nervous system is wired to regulate with each other through our, our voice and our eye gaze and our facial expressions. But I want to say one more thing that I said a couple times why the tongue tie process is intense. And I want to say why. Oh yeah, please. Is that there's a special kind of healing that we do with the tongue tie. And that is called secondary healing intention. That means that we want to keep the wound beds separated Mm. and we want them to heal open like an abrasion. And what the body is naturally trying to do is heal the edges. Yeah. And close it up and heal by primary healing. So we're going in essentially saying no to a normal process. So it's a very interesting paradox and it's, and that is, has varying levels of intensity and comfort, discomfort. Mm -hmm. And remember babies are learning through experience and we want to take care. Now it can be done very well. I walk babies and families through this all the time. It can be done really well. It can be done with respect and grace and love and, and co-regulation and right at the baby's intensity level. Right. And as quick as we need to do it, as long as that takes. Yeah. It's just helpful to hear. And it makes sense again, that like it, right. As you described, I was like, yeah, I picture it like closing back together because that it's like, no, this is how we heal (laughs) is right back together. Oh yeah. And the parents have to go in three to four or more times a day and really kind of open that up. And that is an intense process. And as a parent, I, you know, it's a struggle for me and I've done it many, 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 many times Mm. over many years. And it's just, it's an intense part. And I think it makes parents feel like a lot more confident when they've got their village and people that have taught them and equipped them and educated them, but also empowered them, you know, so we're not here to just tell people what to do, families what to do. Mm -hmm. Once you educate people about what's going on and, and what needs to be done, it does become a little bit more natural. And like you're saying, trust your gut thing doesn't work if they need more information. Yeah. They can only trust their gut when they're provided with two or three options. They're like, okay, that feels right. You know, that's the gut feeling. It's not like I can't intuit the entire, you know, capacity of what you've learned about ties over 10 years, Michelle, you know, you got to, how do you pack that in simply? And so I really appreciated having this discussion and um, let me have a little bit of an out of the box um, thinking, because there are still a lot of people who just identify and send for release. And that happens, you know, everywhere. So 
Yeah. Now we're yeah. getting to let parents know that some, there's something different out there. It's got better outcomes and is less intense and it's better for your baby's nervous system and it's better for their oral sensory processing and how they develop as people. Yeah, this is so, so helpful. Where can people find you, connect with your work, dive deeper if they'd like to? Well, I'm on, I'm on um, Instagram as at tongue tie babies and tummy time method. Awesome. And that's a great place. Those are two great places. I love hanging out in that space. I, I don't stay around a lot. I don't follow a lot of accounts, but I do come and interact from time to time. And I'd like to maybe do a little bit more of that, but I'm a busy person. I'm also still actively parenting. Two of my children still live with me. And while they're young adults, they are still needing their mama. And I love them too. And I'm also trying to, you know, learn how to take it a little bit slower, you know. And um, But their tongue-tie babies and tummy-tie method are two really great places. Awesome. Thank you so much. I so Thank appreciate you. you. I really enjoyed my time with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so, S-E-W. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us 